If you're able, please take your copy of the Scriptures and stand with me as we turn in the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 1, where we'll find our sermon text in verses 2 to 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. We are engaged in a short thematic series here in the latter part of the year, looking at the already, not aspect, aspect, not yet aspects, say it right in a second, of our experience of salvation in Jesus. And today we're going to be thinking about the way in which our experience of sanctification partakes of this same inaugurated but not yet consummated aspect of Christ's kingdom. So hear now God's word, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Man, you may be seated. Well, most often when we're thinking about the already not yet aspects of New Testament theology or biblical theology, we're applying it more broadly to kingdom issues, to the establishment of Christ's kingdom, to the inauguration of the new creation, and to the future consummation and fulfillment of those things that God has begun but not yet completed. But we don't always think about that same tension existing in our own experience of salvation. When we talk about the ordo salutis, the way of salvation, this is the way that theologians have traditionally organized what the Bible teaches about the experience of conversion leading to glorification. And so God calls effectually His elect, and the Spirit causes us to be born again, regenerated at that point in time. Having been born again, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that faith which is itself the gift of God, and having trusted in Jesus, we are justified. We are sanctified adopted as God's children, and one day we expect and are certain that we will be glorified with God's Son. And we think about that ordo salutis as a logical sequence of experience. This is the way in which grace has come to me and is being applied to me. But as we've already seen in earlier lessons of this series, this experience of grace itself has the same kind of tension that we see with regard to the new creation, with regard to the kingdom of God, with regard to the trajectory of all of creation history. There is a sense in which I have been born again at a moment in time. And there is also a sense in which that regeneration has not yet reached its consummation. There is a very real sense in which I have been justified as an act of God's free grace. I am justified, my sins are pardoned, I am declared righteous once and forever right now. And yet there is also a sense in which I continue to see that justification working out in my life. As I trust God, as I walk by faith, as I am led by the Spirit and bear the fruits of that vindication, finally seeing ultimate consummation when we stand before Christ on the last day and hear Him say, well done. And in the same way, we are going to look at sanctification this morning. 
Now, this part of our study could itself be its own series because almost everyone in the conversation recognizes that sanctification, perhaps more obviously than other parts of our experience of the Ordo Salutis, sanctification really does have an already but not yet aspect to its operation. Very often, Reformed Christians think about regeneration and justification solely as accomplished acts. And they don't think about the continuing implications or operations of those blessings of grace. But the experience is just the opposite with sanctification. What is controversial in the Reformed world, at least, about sanctification is the idea that there has been a definitive, objective sanctification of the believer in Jesus Christ. But everyone agrees that there is a progressive outworking, that there is an ongoing work of God's grace making us more holy in our lives. The scriptures reveal that the same already, not yet, character of the rest of Christ's rule can be seen in the believer's experience of holiness. Christians are sanctified and made holy in union with Christ. But we are also being sanctified. And one day, the Bible says, we will be fully sanctified in the presence of the divine glory. This holiness consists of being made like God as we partake of Him. We could even say that this sanctification involves partaking of the divine nature. Except we wouldn't want to say something like that because someone would probably call the presbytery. But there it is in your Bible. Peter says, through these great and precious promises, through this great and effectual grace, God has made us to partake of the divine nature. What in the world could that mean? Well, if you have ever heard of sanctification in a Christian context, it is probably in relation to what we call progressive sanctification, the ongoing dying to sin and rising to righteousness. The Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, gives us an excellent definition of this doctrine. It says, quote, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We are renewed in the whole man. We who were totally depraved and corrupt in every way in all of our parts are now being made anew and more and more day by day crucifying the old man of sin afresh. We are rising to new obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we find throughout the Bible. God's people must pursue holiness by repenting of sin and resisting the temptations of the flesh and practicing obedience to the will of God in heart, word, and deed. And this aspect of sanctification involves a change in our behavior as well as a change in our character. It's the gradual transformation that involves our head, heart, and hands, our desires, are sanctified. Our thoughts are sanctified. Our speech is made more and more holy. And of course, our actions in our lives are conformed more and more to the will of God revealed in Scripture and exemplified in the person of Jesus. More and more, we come to desire the things that God says are truth, goodness, and beauty. And more and more, we come to hate and abhor and repudiate everything that stands in contrast to it. 
One of my favorite passages for teaching on the doctrine of sanctification is Colossians chapter 3. We won't take the time to read it today, but surely many of you are familiar with it already. Verses 1 through 4 of that chapter describe the mindset, the change in orientation in our thinking that has to occur for us to pursue holiness. We don't embark on this endeavor as we are. The Spirit makes us new, makes us alive, fills us with the grace and power of Christ's resurrection, and now we begin to seek the things that are above. In other words, holiness is not just about the habits of our lives. You don't just need a different morning routine. You don't need to set up your bullet journal or your digital calendar in a different way and then you're going to be a holy person. No, you have to change the way that you think. You have to change what your values are, your priorities are, the entire orientation of your life. And you don't do that. The Holy Spirit does that. If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And now you are united to Him, and holiness flows out of the risen, ascended, glorious reign and intercession of the Lord Jesus. And then the chapter gets very practical. Verses 5 through 11 begins to tell us the things that we need to put off if we are to be holy people as God intends us to be. Put to death your members which are on the earth, and many are enumerated there. We have to go to war against ourselves and against our own sinful flesh. Whatever's contrary to the righteousness of Christ has to be put to death. And we do not leave any room for negotiation. We do not trust our own sinful flesh and our own sinful desires. Rather, we battle against them. We battle in our own hearts. We take up our cross daily, as Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and follow Him. But that's not all that holiness involves. It's not just abstaining from things that are bad. It's cultivating and pursuing and practicing the things that God says are good. Verses 12 to 17 of Colossians 3 tell us, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, meekness, long-suffering. These are the things that are characteristic of Jesus and they should be characteristic of us as well. We're not called to just play a guessing game of what Jesus would do in our situation. We're to live our lives based upon what He actually did. Look at His life. He is a model of righteousness. And even more specifically, what did He say we should do? What did He teach us to do? In the Sermon on the Mount, He goes up on the mountain and He delivers God's law to God's people and we learn from it how we ought to think and live as well. Christ is the embodiment of that law and we are called in Scripture to imitate Him in true righteousness and holiness. That's progressive sanctification. And and if you've been a Christian for more than three months, it's probably a very familiar idea to you. It's, It's kind of 101 in Christian discipleship. But while many of us are familiar with that progressive aspect of sanctification, I found that fewer are aware of the fact that Scripture also speaks of holiness in a definitive, objective, accomplished way. Every time the New Testament refers to saints which is just a Greek word that means holy ones, it is speaking of believers in an objectively holy and definitive way. And this is throughout your New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul addresses the church of God which is at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Not those who are being sanctified, although that would also be true. Not those who will one day be perfectly sanctified, although that also would be true. He's writing to those who are sanctified right now. 
and are called as saints and called to live according to that identity. Later in the same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, after enumerating the things that would keep one out of the kingdom of God, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, we say that justification is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. That's true. That's an important distinction to be made. But understand that that distinction is not by itself the entire story. Because here Paul is saying you were sanctified and you were justified. And he's pointing to an accomplished fact. A fact about these believers who have been pardoned by, by God and brought into union with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26, Paul speaks about the relationship between Christ and the church. He says that Jesus died that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Cleanse her definitively. Not just, not just uh, in an ongoing way, although that's also true. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says... It's, it's also true that there's this ongoing cleansing that we experience. We talked about that several weeks ago in relation to our justification. But there is also this definitive aspect to our sanctification. It's even clearer in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 where the writer there says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14 of that same chapter uses a different verb tense to say, And we are being sanctified. We have been, and we are being, and one day we will be, perfectly, fully, consummately. See, already, not yet, already it's true, not yet is it all that it's going to be, is pervasive in the work of Christ. It's pervasive in the outworking of God's kingdom plan and purpose. It's, out, it's pervasive in our experience of sanctification. Sanctification is both an ongoing work and a definitive act. It is the second part of the duplex gratia, the twofold grace of justification and sanctification. We are both declared righteous and also set apart by God as His holy ones. And yet this is sometimes controversial because some theologians want to draw this out a little bit differently to say, in effect, that we are definitively justified and then having been justified as a result of our justification, we will begin to be sanctified. But in fact, union with Christ involves both of these gifts in parallel. It's both of these gifts standing side by side. You are forgiven, declared righteous, not based on anything that is true of you, not based on anything that you have done, not because of any righteousness that you have, whether it was yours originally or God poured it into you. It is through the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that God accepts you in His Son. And He declares you holy and makes you so. He puts His Spirit within you. He unites you organically to Jesus. You are now grafted into the tree, grafted into the vine, married to the Son. You are a member of His body, and the blood is flowing. And so there is a definitive aspect to your justification and to your sanctification that flows out of our union with Jesus Definitive sanctification is connected with at least two aspects of our redemption. Union with Christ, as we were just saying, and also our covenantal status. In relation to union with Christ, we are mystically and organically connected to Jesus whose righteousness becomes our own. 
We are clothed with Him, the Bible says. We are identified with His death and resurrection. We partake of His life and righteousness, and He dwells with us and in us. And interestingly, all of those blessings are visibly signified and sealed in the sacraments. All of those passages that I'm alluding to there connect directly to some passage that speaks about baptism or the Lord's Supper. It is in baptism that we put on Christ and die and rise with Him. It is in the Holy Supper that we eat His flesh and drink His blood, symbolic of feeding upon Christ by faith. Thus we can say to all of those who have been washed that they have been sanctified and justified objectively, even though we realize that some may turn away from Christ. Yeah, sure, some, some are going to prove that they never really had faith at all, that they were never truly saved. They went out from us because they were not of us, because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And yet what is happening in the administration of the sacraments, it is the making visible and concretizing of union with Christ and all of the blessings and benefits associated with it. But the sacraments also point us to that second aspect of definitive sanctification that we mentioned, that covenantal holiness that we have. Those who have been baptized are objectively members of the covenant with Christ. Now, they may prove to be unbelievers, but they had the name of God placed upon them. And they are now covenantally obligated to trust and obey Christ as Lord. The sign of baptism, like circumcision, marks those who belong to the covenant community and calls them to exercise the faith by which sinners are saved. You are supposed to say to your children, you are a Christian, Christians don't act like that. This is not who we are. You belong to Jesus. His name is on you. You are a member of His church. You need to act like that. <laughs> Maybe some... Kids, don't say this to your parents, but like maybe, maybe the elders should say this to your parents, right? You're a Christian. Christians don't act like that. Stop it, right? Please. Like Jesus calls you his own and says, you now belong to me. Live like it. Live like it. See, as American Christians, we have that backwards a lot of times. We think I have to live like it so that one day it'll be true. I have to live like it so that one day, one day God will love me. One day God will accept me. One day I can be part of the church. As soon as I get in shape, I'm going to join a gym, right? But that's not the way that it works. Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. And when he woke up the next morning, he did not claim that he was unmarried. Why? Because there's an objective aspect to the marriage covenant. It was a real marriage. It wasn't the one he wanted. It wasn't the one that he intended. But there it is. And now he has to live in light of it. He had a new, real, definitive status as a husband that he did not have the day before. Now, a man can be unfaithful to his wedding vows. He may abandon his wife. She may mistreat and disrespect him. But they are still married. The marriage makes a difference when two people are, are treating one another in these vicious ways. When they're married, you say, but, but you're married. Well, I don't want to be. What does that have to do with it? You are. You, you are married to one another. That covenantal status makes a difference. There's a real objective thing there. And it's not based on how you feel on any given day. You may, you may wake up this morning feeling like a spiritual person. And you may wake up this morning feeling not like a spiritual person. But you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You say, well, I'm just, I'm just not sure I was sincere enough in that prayer of confession. Maybe, maybe God's pardon just didn't apply to me. 
Did you confess your sins? Are you trusting in yourself or in Jesus? What did God say to you? Are you going to believe him or not? Are you going to call God a liar and say, well, God, maybe you pardon the rest of these people, but I'm pretty sure you didn't pardon me. You see, there's an objectivity to the covenant and to its promises and to the administration of its benefits. A baptized Christian is covenantally holy. Now, he may live a very unholy life. That's not good. He needs to repent of that. There are consequences for that. Breaking the covenant is a serious thing. But he has been set apart in covenant with God. There is a covenant there to break. He belongs to Christ. He owes loyalty and obedience to Christ as his Redeemer. And why does this matter? Because you are holy. It's not merely that you ought to be. You already know that. It's not merely that you are trying to be. I trust, like you got up early on Sunday morning, you're here at church. I trust that you're trying to be. You are holy. And that's what some Christians don't know. Some Christians don't know that. I would go to the assisted living you know, place every, every, uh, a couple times every week. And, and Dane was filling in for me recently there. And I, I come back the, the, the Sunday after his last class that he had taught in my place. And one of, the, one of the ladies in our group there is just overflowing with joy and peace and enthusiasm because she said, he told me that I was already holy. <laughs> like, right, right. But, but I've always, I've been trying all my life to be holy. And I've just known I never was. But he told me I'm holy. Yeah. Right. You see, it seems basic, but it's not. But it's not. A lot of Christians, they go their whole lives. They live a long time. And they never know this. You are holy. God has united you to His Son. You are righteous, not only by a legal declaration, but by personal, spiritual, and covenantal union with Jesus. You say, my, my holiness is, is pretty low. Like the, you, can't, you can't even measure how little I've got in the tank. You're connected to Jesus, the Holy One. You've been set apart by God in Christ, and in that sense, your holiness is already perfect and complete in Him. Now, you may be a hot mess. There's a lot of work still to be done in your life and in your heart. Yes and amen. That's part of what God's calling us to. But He's calling us to realize what He's done so that we will live in light of what is true. If we only think about sanctification in terms of progressive sanctification, then we may think that our growth in holiness is largely driven by our efforts in obedience. And that's going to be either producing a lot of pride if you think you're doing well, or producing a lot of despair if you realize that you're not. On the other hand, if we only think about holiness in terms of definitive sanctification, then we might neglect the real need for and duty of obedience in the Christian life. And that, that could be a cause for concern. You say, I'm, I'm holy, therefore I don't have any responsibility to pursue holiness. No, the Bible says pursue holiness as a holy person. But if we understand that our progressive sanctification is grounded in our prior definitive sanctification and that our definitive sanctification is grounded in union to Christ, the righteous one, then we will have a biblical framework for Christ-centered, spirit-empowered pursuit of holiness and obedience to the Father in imitation of His Son, our Lord. Now, unpacking that would require a larger study of union with Christ, but I want it to suffice today to say that our union with Christ is not just a covenantal relationship. It is a life-giving connection 
whereby we receive divine grace and eternal life from the incarnate Son by means of the Holy Spirit. We actually partake of Christ. And that is by faith. But not merely by reasoned assent to propositional statements. You say, I'm partaking of Christ when I read big, thick books of theology or when I manage to stay awake when Pastor Joel is using all of these $3 words. Right? No, it, yes, but... When we say that we feed upon Christ by faith, we're not just talking about feeding on Christ as insofar as we're smart, insofar as we're educated, insofar as we are theologically intelligent. We're feeding upon Christ by trusting Him, by resting on Him, by looking to Him and not to ourselves. And the Spirit is imparting life to us by means of that union that we share. In John chapter 6, this is exactly what Jesus is speaking about. When he says in verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Can you imagine if Jesus were walking the face of the earth and delivered that sermon today, how many theologians would take him gently by the arm, as Peter did on one occasion, and take him aside privately to rebuke him? I'd say, Lord, you just can't say those kinds of things. Those words were offensive. They were offensive then, and they were offensive now. They were offensive to our reason. They don't entirely make sense to us. We can't fit them neatly into our typical categories. If you take it literally, it sounds like cannibalism. And even if you take it metaphorically, we still don't really know what to do with them. All we know is that we are sure the Catholics are wrong to interpret these words in terms of the Eucharist. But beyond that, we just don't know what to say. The Catholics are wrong, by the way, to interpret them in terms of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is talking about John 6. Jesus isn't talking about the Supper in John 6. The Supper is talking to us every Lord's Day about John 6. This is my body. This is my blood. You're feeding upon Jesus. But not just by putting bread in, in your mouth and swallowing some wine. We say correctly that Jesus is talking here about believing on Him. Yes and amen. But wouldn't it have been easier if He had just simply said that and not added all of this problematic language about eating Him? But the problem is that we are thinking like rationalists, not like Christians. We're thinking like the grandchildren of the Enlightenment rather than with a biblical worldview. We're not thinking about union. We're thinking strictly in legal categories. And that's why we are struggling with some of these ideas. We're not denying that there are legal categories. We're saying that that's one part of a much larger picture of salvation and work of grace. For example, in John chapter 11, Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He didn't ask her if, he, if she understood it, because she would have had to say no. He says, do you believe it? Do you trust me? Now, what does it mean to live in Jesus? You say, I know it means keeping his commandments. Well, there are places where that's exactly what it means in the context. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. He's standing outside of a friend's tomb. He's talking about living and dying. He's not talking about conduct here. He's not talking about patterns of obedience. He's talking about finding the source of life in him. In him. 
And if you receive that source of life from Jesus, you'll never lose it. Death can't take it away. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What? I've been a Christian for a little while. And I thought that even Jesus knew that being a Christian means that you obey Jesus, you believe in Jesus, and then when you die, you get to go to be with him in his home. But what's this business about Jesus and the Father coming and making their home with us? It seems backwards, doesn't it? But there it is in your Bible. This is more than just fellowship. Jesus is describing divine indwelling. For example, in John 15, verses 1 through 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. There's your definitive sanctification. Because of the word which I've spoken to you, abide in me. There's your progressive sanctification. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You cannot go out to the vineyard, hack off one of the branches, put it in a glass of water on the table, and expect that it's going to continue to bear grapes throughout the year. You're connected to Jesus. The sap is flowing. Life is being imparted. That is the source of your life. That is the source of your holiness. That's the source of your obedience. That's the source of your fruitfulness. We have more than just a relationship with God and more than just fellowship with Him. The Bible says we become partakers of the divine nature. Let me take you back to our sermon text that we began by reading a moment ago. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power, His divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this does not mean that we become gods or that we actually share in Jesus' essence, but it does mean that we are made by God, like God, and for God. And it means that the Son of God became man in order that men might become sons of God. And that is what the church has always believed. As Athanasius said it in controversial but wholly orthodox language, quote, for he was made man that we might be made God, end quote. That's in On the Incarnation. There's not a more orthodox book in our history that's not inspired. Like, everybody loves, oh, Athanasius, Athanasius, like, fought for uh, Nicene orthodoxy. Athanasius, On the Incarnation. He's telling us something here that many have not even noticed is written in their Bibles. Calvin knew it. He comments on this sermon text by saying this, quote, Let us then mark that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God and, if we may so speak, to deify us. Calvin, control yourself. Now, he doesn't mean that in the way that the Mormons would, would mean it. He doesn't, doesn't mean that human beings become divine beings. But he does mean that we are partaking of God himself 
His life, His attributes, His holiness, that we have transcended just bookkeeping. There is now life in the Son of God. The measure of our sanctification is God Himself as revealed in the perfect righteousness and natural sonship of the incarnate Lord Jesus. What Christ is and has by nature, we have by grace and adoption through our union with Him. The Spirit comes and joins us in living union to the triune God so that the Son's Father is now our Father. So that the Son's righteousness is now our righteousness. So that the Spirit's power is now our power. We do not lose our personal identity or humanity as a result of this union. Just as Christ remained truly man in regard to His human nature, so we remain truly human. But our sanctification is more than just a membership card. More than just a new habit of mind or life. This will change the way you think about Christianity, by the way, if you will allow it, if you will open your mind just a little bit. This will change a lot in how you think about life in Christ. We are joined to God, righteous in Christ, and alive by the Spirit. And so if you are a believer in Christ, you are holy. You have been definitively sanctified. You are objectively holy as a member of the covenant, one united to Jesus. Your life may not very well consistently reflect that reality, but you must live in light of that union. You live in light of your baptism. You know who you are in Christ, and you act like it. The Bible is full of statements indicating that perfect standard to which we are obligated. The righteous standard that we transgress every day. The standard that we can in no way conform to apart from the redeeming work of Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just rules that you are supposed to keep. That would be easier. I can keep rules. Scripture says you are to be like God. You are to be perfect in righteousness and holiness. And that is something that you are not good at and neither am I. Leviticus chapter 11, For I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. I am Yahweh, who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It's not just an Old Testament principle. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The Scriptures teach that the pattern for our sanctification is the righteousness of God Himself. In fact, Paul says this is what we are growing up into as members of His body. Ephesians 4 verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When you look at Jesus in Scripture, you see God in the flesh and man as He's meant to be. That's what you see. Jesus stands between us. He lays His hands on both of us, as, as Job desired to have a mediator that, that could do that. He stands between God and man. He puts His hand on both of us, and we look to Jesus and we see my Lord and my God, and we see God's plan for my life, God's will for my life. No, I'm not going to be a God. I am a son of God. I am adopted into the same relationship that Jesus has by nature. And that's pretty mind-boggling. This is why sin is described in Scripture as falling short of the glory of God. It is God's glory that we are to live up to, to exemplify, to pursue, and to reflect as a holy people. And insofar as we do not, we remain sinners. But God has united us to His incarnate Son, 
clothed us with His righteousness, shared His glory with us, so that now we are righteous and accepted in Him. And the Spirit continues to work in us, making that holiness and righteousness a reality. We are not all that we ought to be yet, but in Christ we are holy, and we are becoming holy, and one day we will be perfectly, fully, unchangeably holy before the God in whom we live this day. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You're looking at the glory of God, and God is making you like what you're looking at. Now, quick application, and then we'll be done. How does understanding this already not yet aspect of sanctification help us? Because it, it may sound academic, it may sound intellectual, it may sound kind of ethereal, impractical, but this is not an academic point of theology. There is real practical value in what we're talking about today, and I want to make sure that's clear before we finish. First, some, some believers struggle with a crushing conviction that they are not holy enough to please the Lord. They are constantly discouraged in their Christian life. They feel little joy in their salvation, and often instead they feel despair. They think of sanctification only in terms of law, effort, and conformity, and they need a larger, more biblical picture. You need to know that you are sanctified, that you have been definitively and objectively set apart by God for God, you need to know that in that regard, your holiness is complete. That you are already pleasing to God. That you are already accepted by Him because you are united to the righteousness and holiness of Christ. You are a branch connected to the vine. You are a member of the body. You are a stone in the living temple of the Holy Spirit. And your place and status there is not a matter of performance. It is a consequence of being united to the Savior. Secondly, some believers think of sanctification only in terms of rules, commands, and law. Being a Christian is largely an intellectual exercise for them. Discovering the right doctrines to believe, adopting the correct practices, and maintaining the standard. They may speak of Christ and the Spirit, but if we're honest, there is little need for them in their system. What we need is simply a Bible and discipline. And because we are good at finding and categorizing and keeping rules, we all can be thankful that we're not like those worshipers standing over there who are doing it wrong. <laughs> These believers need to know that the standard that we are called to is God's own righteousness and perfection, and that they are not even close. There is no amount of theological intelligence doctrinal purity, or behavioral diligence that will enable you to achieve the glory of God. And if you think otherwise, your target is way too low. The more you look to your doctrine and worship and habits to measure your sanctification, the more guilty you become of pride in the presence of God. Instead, we need a vision of holiness that is bigger than we can imagine and more than a little frightening. A standard of holiness that will cause us to flee to Christ and depend on His Spirit rather than our own efforts. Third and finally, some believers rarely think about sanctification at all. They are simply resting in their justification. They know the gospel, they are at peace with the fact that they continue to sin, and they don't stress about it. After all, one day the Lord will make them perfectly holy. They consider the greatest threat to Christianity 
to be the ever-present boogeyman of legalism. Well, these saints need to understand that they are united to Christ and both empowered and required to live as a faithful member of His body. The Lord did not call you in uncleanness but in holiness. That is His will for our lives and His Spirit abides in us and His Son nourishes us so that that will might be accomplished objectively, progressively, and one day in the end perfectly. The Christian who is more afraid of legalism than his own laziness needs to remember that the gospel is not merely a message of justification. It is a work of transformation. If we believe in Christ, we ought to believe on Him not only for the pardon of our sins, but also for the progressive victory of daily obedience in putting sin to death and practicing righteous obedience to the will of God. We've said many times here, even earlier today, that the Christian doctrine of sanctification involves knowing who you are in Christ and acting like it. Holiness involves effort, but it is an effort empowered first by resting in Christ and knowing that I am sanctified in Him, by Him, and for Him. Let me quote John Murray before I'm finished today. He said this, quote, To a large extent, the progress of sanctification is dependent upon the increasing understanding and appropriation of the implications of that identification with Christ in His death and resurrection. Nothing is more relevant to progressive sanctification than the reckoning of ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ." Quote. May God help us to live as men who are in fact dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ our risen and ascended Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word, God in the flesh, Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, who fulfilled all righteousness, who died in our place upon the cross, who rose the third day, and even now is ascended and enthroned and interceding for us as our prophet, priest, and king. We pray, O oh God, that your Spirit sent from heaven who dwells in us would indeed empower us to convict us for the pursuit of holiness and to give us grace to succeed in that endeavor. O oh Lord, we look not to ourselves and not to our own works, but rather to you, to your grace and to your Son's righteousness. And we rest upon your promise that has now made us partakers even of the divine nature. Bring us fully to your glory, O oh God, we pray. Make us all that you created and have called us to be. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.